Good evening and welcome to Taiwan This Week. ICRT's roundup of the top news stories from around Taiwan. Today, we'll be covering the last seven days. I'm Keith Manconi of ICRT News. Joining me in studio today is Gavin Phipps, also of ICRT News. Hello, Gavin. Howdy doody. We've got two regular contributors joining us as well, uh, so all familiar voices on the show today. First up, uh, happy to welcome back to the show Brian Hugh of New Bloom Magazine. Thanks for having me. And also on the show today, we got Yuan Ming Chao of the China Post. It's great to be here again. On the show today, a Chinese dissident who sought asylum in Taiwan has now been sent back to China after Taiwanese authorities rejected his asylum request. We'll look at the latest in this unfolding cross-strait drama. Then the KMT chairmanship election is getting closer by the day. This week, six contenders turned in heaps of signatures to officially register as candidates. But those heaps may have been just a little bit too large. We'll discuss why that may be an issue. And the executive yuan has just passed new rules to help attract more white-collar foreign talent to Taiwan. We'll give those a quick look for all those foreign-born professionals listening in. Then in the second half, the world holds its breath as a standoff between North Korea, the U.S., and China over Pyongyang's ballistic missile and nuclear testing continues. Gavin spoke to one long-term Taiwan defense analyst to shed some light on Taiwan's own complicated relationship with everyone's favorite hermit kingdom. And last up for the broadcast, the China Post, the venerable English-language daily newspaper, is a daily newspaper no more, or at least it won't be soon. This week they announced they will soon move to an all-digital format after 65 years churning out Taiwan news with ink and paper. Yuan Ming is going to tell us what was behind that decision, and we'll discuss the trajectory of English-language media in Taiwan. But first, the streets around the legislative Yuan got a little noisy this week. You are hearing there the angry voices of several hundred civil servants, many retired, who descended on the legislative yuan this week to signal their opposition to President Tsai Ing-wen's pension reform plan. Pension reform, of course, being a euphemism for cutting pensions. Cutting pensions, of course, being a slightly nicer way of saying, uh, we're not going to pay you the money we said we were going to pay you. Now, the Tsai administration has said these cuts are absolutely necessary and that the pension system will run out of money if drastic ac- action is not taken and taken soon. But on Tuesday, about 2,000 current and former teachers, soldiers and government workers staged a mass rally outside the legislative UN anticipating committee talks that were scheduled for Wednesday uh, to review the reform proposals. When night fell Tuesday evening, many remained and spent the night on the street. Uh, A fairly impressive display of determination, given uh, that many in the crowd are in their 60s and 70s. So, uh, everyone in Taiwan, the media, the government, the police, were ready for something huge. Some people thought it might be the next Sunflower Movement. Uh, Well, I was there. I actually got to the protest around 7 a.m. Wednesday morning. Uh, And the protest uh, at that time had kind of dwindled down to uh, several hundred. Uh, It did manage to pick up uh, a little bit later, probably peaked around 11 a.m., but it never quite hit that critical mass that I think uh, everyone was expecting. Despite the somewhat lower numbers, though, people were very loud, 
for one thing, and also very determined. Uh, there was a lot of anger uh, that day, and the way that they were venting their anger was by uh, blocking whoever they deemed to be unfriendly lawmakers or unfriendly government officials that were trying to get into the legislative yuan, essentially trying to block any kind of vote by preventing the necessary uh, lawmakers to even make it into the building. Those efforts were largely unsuccessful because they just didn't have the number to really encircle the entire legislative compound. I mean, uh, there were a number of buildings that were blocked off by uh, about 2,000, reportedly 2,000 police officers and uh, barbed wire barricades. So there was a lot of ground to cover and they just couldn't cover it all. So uh, uh, lawmakers eventually did make it into the building uh, despite a number of clashes somewhat earlier in the morning. Uh, And a review of the bill did uh, proceed a little bit. We'll we'll get into that in uh, just a second. Outside of the legislative compound, though, uh, the protest really did peter out around noon. Although, uh, as I said, the intensity among the protesters certainly was there. Uh, Just to give a sense, I'm going to play a couple of clips from conversations I had uh, with some of the protesters that made it out there. First up, uh, here is a soldier who was telling me that he feels that the DPP is using this entire measure as a political weapon. The DPP is slandering the civil servants. They've completely dismissed the contributions we've made throughout Taiwan's history. Why? Just for the sake of political infighting. That's why this is our slogan. Fake reform for a political fight. They are using this fake reform to attack the civil servants. All right, so you can hear the anger right there coming from him. Uh, Then I also spoke to uh, this teacher. She says that she retired just about a year ago. And she picked up on a theme that I heard from a lot of the protesters and a lot of the leadership as well, that they feel like the DPP simply hasn't been open enough to public criticism throughout the drafting process uh, for these reforms. And today uh, really didn't help that image, you know, with the barricading in of all these legislators. During the election, President Tsai said this government would be the best government at communicating ever. Tsai said herself that we can raise our voice. And if the government doesn't hear us, we can raise it even louder. And if it still can't hear, we can beat our fists on our desks. But now she's not communicating with us at all. A lot of anger there, a lot of mistrust, certainly, but not quite the numbers that we were expecting. Uh, Gavin, how about you get up up to date on where this stands in terms of uh, the response to it? You know, despite the low numbers, it does seem like the protest uh, succeeded in at least postponing uh, the discussion of the draft legislation. Well, that's what a couple of newspapers screamed on Thursday with headlines that said, protesters cheer forcing delay of pension reform proposal hearings. Mm-hmm. Of course, these proposals, there's more than one. There's not just one government pension reform proposal. There's a whole bunch of pension reform proposals. Although rather significantly, not one from the KMT. It was no, well, well, They the, were invited to submit one, but well, they never that's, did. That's, that's the pickle they got themselves in, really. Even Because, I mean, the previous KMT government turned around and had to admit that the state pension system is going down the toilet and you have to save money somewhere. Right. Now, while How Long Bing and Hong So Ju went to this demonstration on went Tuesday evening, I believe mm-hmm. they Tuesday were Tuesday evening, yep. They said they support the protesters, but then they support the protesters for what? Doing the... 
the KMT said, like I said, that the pension system needs reform. So it needs reform. Going down there and slapping yourself in the back and saying, I support you for votes, is not really being honest with them, is it? Because your government as well, your party as well, realises there needs to be reform in the state pension system. Right. Uh, but just getting back to the schedule for the legislative review, oh, there's now week. going to be two public two, hearings two next he- week. Two hearings next week, yes. Because, of course, the protesters were calling for public hearings. Mm-hmm. That was one of their big things. There was also a bit of violence. Right. 25 people. In fact, several people were arrested, mm-hmm. and a total of 25 people are suspected of inciting violence. That's according to the National Police Agency Director General Chen Guoyen. Um, President Tsai Ing-wen came out and criticised the violence, though. Mm -hmm. And she said that, basically, such actions will not deter or slow down her government plans to reform the state pension system. She also said that those who cause problems and resort to violence at the protest will be held accountable. And as I said, the police agency director general noted that 25 people are suspected of inciting violence... And, of course, these 25 people all got themselves on CCTV cameras. Yay! So we How might... could you go down to the government building area and not believe you wouldn't be all over CCTV cameras? Well, and the police officers that were there were taking pictures of folks yep. that were blocking cars or blocking so entrances. They might have thought they got away with it, but basically they haven't got away with it. Right. Well, uh, just to go over very quickly what we mean when we say pension reform, what we're talking about here, uh, according to these proposals, what's going to happen is uh, they're going to lower the income replacement rates, increase pension premiums, raise the retirement age, and phase out uh, the preferential savings rate for retired military personnel, civil servants, and teachers. That uh, preferential savings rate is one of the most contentious issues. I believe it's uh, 18% preferential rate. Uh, the folks at the protest were saying the coverage of that issue has been rather slanderous. They view it, uh, you know, they were saying that this was needed compensation because they weren't being compensated in other ways. Uh, folks outside of the civil service feel that that is just another privilege that the civil class has been enjoying for years and years and years and uh, has led to an unequal society. Well, what, their main issue with that was, of course, that people that were given the 18% preferential treatment on their bank accounts were, of course, a Allegedly, some of them using their bank accounts to get 18% preferential interest rates for other people. Mm-hmm. They were putting other people's money in their bank account and basically abusing. Wasn't it Wasn't it Reagan who was in, in favour of trickle-down economics? This might just be a... Yeah, well, Ronald Reagan was in favour of blind people up and doing a lot of stupid things. Let's not go there, shall we? No. <laughs> Fair enough. Fair enough for today. Well, let's turn things over to Brian. Now, this is kind of right up your alley in a way because you've been covering the Sunflower Movement itself uh, for a long time, and there were a lot of comparisons made to the Sunflower Movement uh, just in terms of the scale of it and the intensity of it, Chun Wei Ting, one of the Sunflower leaders, of course, came out recently and said, this is nothing like the Sunflower Movement. Uh, we did not endorse violence in this sort of way. Other people said, you know, Sunflower Movement uh, was an example where folks came out, they blocked a democratic process, and in the end, we just found out recently, most of the people uh, are not going to be prosecuted for any of that. So if the Sunflower Movement could do it and the government's going to apply them, why can't we? Uh, what are your thoughts on all that? I mean, it's very interesting because, you know, there's definitely a pattern by, you know, the members of the KMT or the Pam Blue camp to imitate action of the Sunflower Movement in the past several years. Um, this is seen as a way to try and get public attention similar to the way the Sunflower Movement did. This includes, you know, multiple attempts to invade the uh, legislative ring um, regarding issues, not only including pension reform, but also, you know, American pork imports and so forth. Um, the, the, the the fact that the, the pension reform protesters, the anti-pension reform protesters, are occupying a 
Tet near the Legislative Ren is also probably an imitation of the Taiwanese Independence Organization, the Alliance of Referendum for Taiwan, which has a permanent occupation there. And, you know, there's also been a call for referendum on these kind of issues, such as American pork imports, uh, food imports from Japan, that from radiation-affected areas, or pension reform. So I think that, you know, again, there's definitely this imitation here. Um, the real question is that, you know, apart from the use of violence, uh, it is not really an issue that I think can really attract public attention. It is, you know, the it is much older people that are protesting and not younger people. Um, also, many of the, I mean, ironically, for because you know they take this as a single issue that they hope to get widespread public attention. There's a lot of pro-China sentiment mixed in there. Um, you know, you see signs at the protest site that says says things like you know revive Chinese culture, oppose DP populism, or and you know. Very, very pan-blue sentiments. So I don't, I kind of don't see it spreading that way. Now, on the one hand, one of the reasons that uh, these reforms are necessary is, of course, Taiwan's aging demographics. It's going to owe more and more pensions with time as more people retire. It's going to have a, a smaller and smaller tax base as the workforce thins out. But facing down these retirees, now one thing that they said to me over and over and over again was, we followed the rules, you know, there are all these restrictions in place for civil servants, the work they can do, the types of investments that they can make. We followed the rules, we were promised this money, and we were, you know, planning our golden years based on the money that we were expecting to get. Uh, now, Yuan Ming, uh, prices have increased for years and years. Uh, obviously, wages haven't. And now these folks are not just going to be on a fixed income. They're apparently a diminishing income. And uh, likely a lot of the anger just comes from the fact that uh, all segments of society are getting pinched uh, in this way. Yeah, I think um, going back to the points that were mentioned already, um, I really think that it's unhelpful to see this as a, a pan-blue, pan-green issue. Um, this is really a generational issue, generation uh, justice. Um, I mean, I was talking to some of the civil servants who weren't protesting, the, the younger ones who are still working, and they're obviously worried about whether there'll be pensions for them, and they want the system to be reformed. Um, and they also come from families where their parents were civil servants. And so you have, you know, families um, talking about this issue and um, you have the younger generation trying to convince the older generation why they want to, why they would support pension reform. While, you know, the older people would think, well, this is an, an injustice. But the issue comes to, um, to head when um, you have, as you mentioned, a younger generation that's overburdened with, um, Stagnant wages, property prices, you know, now it takes, if you don't, if you save and you don't eat anything, it takes 9.35 years to, to buy a house in Taiwan or 15 mm -hmm. years in Taiwan, right. in Taipei. Mm -hmm. um, so this is, this is something, this is um, something that we have to look at is, I mean, pension reform, that's a given, that has to be done. Um, of course, I think the, the barbed wire was bad optics, mm -hmm. but, um, but we have to look at, you know, what is the government doing to balance the pension so that it's equal for all segments of society? I think one of the reasons why there is such backlash is that, you know, there are multiple layers here. There's <clears throat> the issue of the political camps, you know, pan-green versus pan-blue. There's the generational issue of the older generation versus the younger generation. And there's also the ethnic issue of that, you know, many of the protesters are Weishengren, older Weishengren, sometimes directly from China, and, you know, versus Ben Shengren. So there's a lot of layers here. And the other issue is that, you know, the 
public servants, the teachers, and the military constituted a privileged class under the KMT in which service to the state was generously rewarded. But, you know, there's also the attempt to peel back these former benefits. At the same time, you know, I think there's also many people that are just ordinary people that are affected. Their retirement plans are definitely affected. And I think there's also the issue of that, you know, there's a lack of creative solutions. You know, where else can you get money besides just cutting pensions? You know, why not raise taxes on the super wealthy? I mean, Taiwan has a lot of wealthy tycoons, but that idea is never going to come up, unfortunately. An interesting thing that I noticed with, uh, I'm trying to look at, you know, what are the commonalities in the arguments between those who support pension reform and those who are actually, who are are against it. And uh, one of the things is um, um, that link them together is they think that the government could be more open with information on this, with the data that's available on, you know, when something, when the the funds will run out, the exact numbers. They say that without these uh, numbers, it's hard for them to make calculations and to come up with arguments. I, I heard this from both reformers and um, those who are uh, not so in support of them. And, and so I think um, maybe this could be something that the government could work uh, with these two opposing groups together is to get that information um, transparent and to make that communication, you know, a bit more um, possible. Hmm. Yeah, definitely a, a huge demand there for more transparency in the handling of this issue as a whole. But it's something that we'll be talking about more on this show. Obviously, those reviews are coming up next week, and we are likely to see either more protest or something similar uh, in uh, the weeks to come. So, a lot coming up on the horizon. Moving on, though, up next, uh, well, last week we discussed the plight of Li Mingzhe, a Taiwanese human rights activist who continues to be detained in China. This week, Taiwan faced a fresh challenge involving dissidents and cross-strait politics, but this time... The dissident was Chinese, and on this side of the Taiwan Strait, Gavin. Yeah, this is about a one Zhang Shangjong, and he described himself as a civil rights activist from China's Shandong province. And he arrived in Taiwan on April the 12th as part of a Chinese tour group who were visiting Taiwan for eight days. He decided to abscond from that group a day later, where he met with the, uh, I believe it was Radio Free Asia, where he told the correspondent for that radio station that he plans to seek political asylum here in Taiwan. He later went out and told the Apple Daily that he planned to seek political asylum here in Taiwan, but then instead of going to a government office and saying, hey, I'm here to seek political asylum, he simply disappeared for 24 hours. Of hmm. course, he'd been... He'd, by saying this, of course, he tipped off immigration officials that he was planning to do it, but he did a bunk, and they, find him, they found him later on Monday evening, I believe, in New Taipei's Xindian District. Hmm. So the reason that he gave for why he wanted to get political asylum, he says that he was locked up for three years for participating in anti-corruption uh, protests or rallies or activities of some kind. Yeah, he said it was because of his work with a civic group in China, and he also said that he was being monitored by police there. But skip a few days ahead, and Taiwanese authorities actually uh, rejected his asylum request. They did. They said, um, basically, the the National Immigration Agency said it reviewed Zhang's case but found it didn't conform to existing regulations governing long-term residency or refugee status. Of course, Taiwan does not give political asylum to Chinese nationals, per se. Right, although the Mainland Affairs Council says that uh, it does sometimes uh, grant long-term residency on a case-by-case basis. Yes, it's called long-term residency, not political asylum. Mm Mm-hmm. 
Right. So that's where the case stands. Uh, according to China, they said that he was jailed for credit card fraud. So, well, this is you know another thing around this case. You have got a lot of reports by foreign media about this case, obviously jumping on the fact that he's a supposed civic activist in China. Of so course, that's what he said. You know. Clearly a lot we don't know. Clearly a lot we don't know. What we do know, though, is apparently he voluntarily agreed to return to China. Mm-hmm. They didn't have to force him on an aeroplane. Well, the Mainland Affairs Council certainly wanted to emphasize that point because they wanted to drive home the fact that they were not forcing this guy back into China. You know, they no. don't they don't want to look like they're falling down on the job of uh, pr- protecting a, a suspected activist or uh, something like that. Now... Interesting. We can actually make a little bit of a connection to the Li Mingjia case that we discussed last week because uh, this latest activist uh, says that he was actually inspired by Li Mingjia to come forward. So uh, a, a way of looking at this, that this is kind of uh, another one of the ripple effects of that case ongoing in China, still unresolved. Uh, Brian, what do you see here? It's very hard to judge with this one because, you know, there are also Taiwanese activists that are involved with China issues that have questioned his background and the fact that, you know, he kind of did things out of order in the way you usually apply for asylum. You don't usually first go to the media. Um, but apart from that, I mean, it is it is actually very surprising that he did go back and the Thai administration did not take a very strong stance on the issue. Um, I mean, you know, I think the Thai administration is really, really afraid of, you know, deteriorating cross-street relations in a kind of unusual way. Because, you know, I it, is, it doesn't seem like things can really get worse that, you know, there's really no harm in accepting this guy, whatever his strange background is. And if he goes back to China and then does get arrested, then that's a huge liability because responsibility for that does seem to lie at the feet of the Thai administration for not taking him in. Mm-hmm. So He went back on Thursday, I believe. That's right. Has anyone heard from him? <laughs> uh, he has actually said, as of yesterday, that he was temporarily safe, though he was, you know, taken in by police for questioning at some point. Um, I mean, it just it just remains to be seen. I mean, surprisingly, there hasn't been a lot of discussion of this issue within Taiwan, I feel like. So it, it does actually, it is to be questioned whether this will just, you know, slide under the rug. Um, but this also could be a time delay. I mean, even with the Li Mingjia case, although that, you know, directly involves a Taiwanese citizen, it was an unusual period of time in which that was not discussed between his kidnapping and when public outcry broke out. Right. The the headlines that I'm seeing kind of frame this as a Taiwan dodges a cross-strait bullet, doesn't accept this activist. Uh, Yuan Ming, do you think that that's the right way to view this? Uh, yeah. I, I mean, to to go with uh, Brian's uh, remarks, I think that uh, Tsai Ing-wen's administration, by you know, not taking him in, um, um, they, they don't want to elevate the the tenseness of uh, cross-strait relations right now. Um, if if they did a one-up, you know, with what's happened with uh, Li Minzo right now, then the whole um, this current situation in the in between Taiwan and China moves away or deviates away from mainly this thing about Tsai Ing-wen not accepting the so-called 1992 consensus. Um, so so she's keeping this, I think. Um, very low key, um, and um, this will, you know, this will disappoint. I think some people, um, mm-hmm. but it's it's not going to uh, create a huge public outcry. But um, on one thing is, um, what does this say about um, this future asylum law that is being uh, considered by, uh, considered right now um, in the legislative unit? Yeah, um, I think this is something that we will have to observe. Mm. Um, and whether or not you know um, a future case like this um, will be covered 
by the asylum law. If the government is willing to take that risk, you know, for any any political asylum seeker, whether or not they're from mainland China or from somewhere else in the world. Yeah. Mm. Uh, Brian, very quickly, closing thoughts. Mm. I mean, I think the the corollary is that you know there's still the issue of Li Mingzhen in China because the time administration response has been kind of muted on that. And the fact is, you know, there's also this, these issues of you know Taiwanese that commit telephone fraud against Chinese that are deported to China. So all these issues of you know which country treats which people are kind of still up there and. and you know how how it's being hammered out is a question, but it's also although the Thai mission did also take a very muted response on the Li Mingzhe case, some people do also connect that this case and its handling of that to the Li Mingzhe case, and that you know if you do take this guy in, maybe that just lowers the chances of getting Li Mingzhe back from China. So that's that's the other explanation maybe for the Thai administration's actions. Mm. Just think, if he'd flown over on a MIG three decades ago, he would have got a big pile of gold and been put on the back of a truck in the Double Ten Parade and waved to everyone as he was driving down the road in his young jumpsuit. He was just a couple decades off. He was three decades off on that one, wasn't you gotta, he? you got to get the timing right on these things. All right, well, we'll leave it on that point. Up next, uh, we're going to take a quick look at the unfolding race for the KMT chairmanship. This week, candidates turned in signatures as part of the registration process. It was actually uh, pretty impressive how many signatures were turned in. Uh, party chairwoman Hong Xiaoju, vice chairman Hao Longbin, former vice chairman Steve Chan, and former legislator Pan Wei Kong each submitted over 100,000 signatures. That's way over the 13,000-odd signatures required to register as a candidate. But if you add all those together, the funny thing is, if you add all those together, all of those signatures add up to more than the 478 thousand eligible party members. Gavin? Yeah, the KMT said earlier this week that 720,000 signatures were collected from the six party members who are running in the election. With two, in fact, 221,891 of those signatures were submitted alone by Vice President Udini. Four white Vice President There we go. Udini. And as you said, Keith, um, Hong Shouju, Halong Bing, Steve Jan and Tina Pan each submitted more than 100,000 signatures each. And the final candidate, Taipei Agricultural Products Marketing Corporation Chairman. How do you put that on a name card? <laughs> Hang Wu Yu. Well, he handed in... Sounds better th- in Chinese. It's too, you need a big Work name card. How would you work for this company? You need a huge name card. You should just hand people the cucumbers that... Uh, <clears throat> Basically, do something. Anyway, Mr. Hang Yu handed in 57,341 supporting signatures. So a lot of support for all these guys. Yep. And something wrong there, because that came in to over 721,000, and only 478,000 KMT members are actually eligible to endorse candidates. Something's not adding up here. No, and I love the comment. The KMT has now established a nine-member election supervisory committee to review the signatures and to rule out any double endorsements. Hmm. Maybe some triple endorsements. Might be a couple triple endorsements. endorsements. Now, this is a bigger news story, an even bigger news story, because it follows on the heels of other irregularities and allegations that... uh, Yeah, the signatures, as we were going to say, you see Psy Power, Keith, Mm -hmm. became an issue a few weeks ago. With a couple of these candidates, I won't name them, but you can read about them in the news if you so wish, accusing other candidates of actually 
falsifying signatures and getting other people to sign on their little bits of paper that weren't eligible to vote. Potentially gangsters. Basically, Filling the roles with well, gangsters was gangsters, the allegation. Didn't we? We had, didn't we have bar girls for a stage as well? We had bar girls. <laughs> didn't hear about that one, but there okay. Were, there was bar girls joining the KMT to vote, and there were some other nefarious people being asked to join the KMT Nothing to vote. nefarious about bar girls, all right? Yeah. Let's not malign bar girls. Bar girls can join. <laughs> <laughs> they can join Yuan Ming's party. Uh, and uh, even more recently, just uh, last Friday, I think, there was uh, more allegations coming from Steve Jan. Yeah, yeah. He's been having a bit of a war of words with Vice President Udini. Former Vice President, former, yeah. Vi- former Vice President Udini, yeah. Because apparently Udini is apparently heading the support polls at the moment. The most recent support poll for who's going to take the county leadership puts Udini at the top. He's got a big target on his back. Steve Jan, of course, is a vice, former Vice Chairman of the county. There's about six Vice Chairmen of the county every every year. So, you know, he's not he's not... He's not Haolong Bing, he wasn't mayor of Taipei, he's not Hong So Ju, he's not an incumbent, you know, so he's a bit down there. He accused them of getting up to all sorts of shenanigans to swing, swing the vote. Mm-hmm. Right. But the and- target of his Irie was Udini. Mm-hmm. This prompted other candidates to... Some of the candidates accused these charges of being somewhat irresponsible. They basically said, hey, if you don't have evidence, don't just say this stuff. Uh, other candidates said, hey, we will give you $200,000 for any whistleblowers who come forward with actual hard evidence of this. Udini had perhaps uh, the most colorful response. He said that if any kind of real evidence comes out against him, if anybody can prove any malfeasance on his part, he will drop out of politics forever. So a strong claim on his part. Uh, So uh, an interesting week of allegations uh, moving towards a chairmanship election that will be very important for the KNT to determine what the future of that party is going to look like. Yuan Ming, uh, maybe not the best look for the party coming into that race. Yeah, I mean, these uh, issues that uh, you've mentioned right now, they have overshadowed... um, Anything that the six candidates uh, in this race have brought um, in terms of, you know, proposed policies or, or what they they want to run on as a platform, um, I, I don't think this has come out very clearly. Um, as Gavin mentioned earlier, um, if you look at this field, um, only Halongbing is uh, in an incum- uh, a former incumbent of a, of a major constituency, yeah? and that was 2014. Yeah, mm. he's been he's been kind of out of the out of the loop for two or three years. He tried to run in Geelong as well. I remember that didn't yeah, go too yeah. well because they sent him packing, didn't they? Yeah, it didn't go too well. And and then the other five um, are are not of you know Wu Denyi, a former mayor of Kaohsiung, but in the in the in the nineties, I believe. Mm-hmm. Um, so you don't have uh, so these you know they're really jostling over issue ownership, mm-hmm. but there there hasn't been really. You know, a good adhesive quality to their, to their, to their positions. There's also six of them. Yeah. So I, I think it's got to do with the fact that there's more than two of them running. That's <laughs> right. thrown the KMT into a complete tizzy fit. Going, what are we going to do? We've got six people and not two or one. Right. Because of course, if you look back at the history of the KMT chairmanship elections, there's either two, three, or one. I believe Maing Joe was the only one when he ran as chairman. He ran against Wang Jinping. He ran against yeah. Wang Jinping, yeah. but then there was another time there was only one candidate, yeah. and then there was another. Then there was two candidates. Yeah. Mm-hmm. There's one thing uh, about this uh, petition signature issue is that um, the candidates had played uh, around with the idea a few weeks ago about just getting rid of the entire thing, and it's just interesting that nothing really came up of that. Yeah. Hmm. 
Wasn't that How Long Bing that called for it to get rid of? Yeah, How Long Bing did. Um, yeah, yeah, yeah. Also, also Hong Shou kind of toyed with the idea, but at the end, nothing happened. Mm-hmm. So, Brian, uh, a party in disarray? Um, I think that, you know, this returns to the fact that, yeah, there's a lot of internal chaos when they came to, particularly regarding issues of internal democracy. I mean, there's controversy about, you know, Hong making all these changes to the way the elections are run to, you know, try and continue as chairman. And there's also these questions of, you know, with the reputation for lack of internal democracy, how can the KMT clear up this reputation even within the party? And so, you know, and then all these candidates want to, you know, rise to the top as though they have a popular mandate from the party. And so these that kind of didn't work out because, you know, you want to be the person that comes in as a candidate of change and reform with the support of huge parts of the party. And then, you know, when there are irregularities in, in your supposed support base, as seen in these petitions, that doesn't really work out when you claim, you know, you're going to turn the party around and clean up its image and so forth. So I think a lot of these things just kind of clash with each other, and that's, that's really what the candidates are facing. And they have from May the 6th through May the 19th to campaign, if anybody's interested. There we go. And the actual election will be on May the 20th. Co- coincidence, that, isn't it? Because what else happened on May the 20th? One year... May the 20th, 2016. It's a one-year anniversary of uh, our very own president, <laughs> the inauguration of Wen Taingwen. So a lot to look forward to over the next month. Uh, we will be following it closely, but we are moving now to the very last story for the first half of the broadcast. Thinking of coming to Taiwan? Well, the executive yuan is passing some new rules that might make it easier for you if you've got the skills, Gavin. Yeah, this is the cabinet. On Thursday, it approved a draft bill, which is, in the words of the government, aimed at easing the regulations pertaining to visas, work permits, taxes and residences for foreign white-collar workers who opt to come to Taiwan. There's a slurry of changes here. They include, basically, we've got one removes the requirement for foreign white-collar workers with permanent residency to remain in Taiwan for 183 days per year to maintain that status. And I believe they've moved that to five years and obviously that's good for people that obviously come here and go to other places to work or you're based here and you have to travel under the proposed regulations a new category of work permit has also been introduced called the employment gold card and that's apparently going to be introduced for certain categories of foreign professionals and my ARC is blue, so I'm assuming I'm not yet a gold card member. Hey, the, the, the permanent residency cards when they first introduced them were pink. Uh huh. That's they were, a they were slight pink, step up, then. Pink all right. Cards. Uh-huh. Yes. Other regular, other regulations that are changed is per, um, the spouses and children of certain white collar professionals will no longer have to wait six months to be covered by the country's <coughs> national health insurance system, and other professionals that come here will also get access to the national pension system. So there's a whole slurry of things here, and I've just I've just touched on them basically. Mm-hmm. But on the phone we have Michael Fahey, of course, who's been on the show before, and he's been working behind the scenes for a long time to get the government to work on such regulations. So, Michael, I mean, did this come as a surprise to you yesterday when the cabinet announced they'd finalized the bill? No, not at all. This has been uh, in the works for uh, a number of months. Back in September, the Thai government uh, announced their policies regarding foreign talent, uh, and then they followed that up with a questionnaire to the foreign community, and then they drafted this bill, which was released in late December. They held public hearings, and then it was online for two months for public comments. So not a surprise at all. Right. Did anything catch your eye? Obviously you said there was a slurry of things involved in the bill. What caught your eye? What parts caught your eye? Well, the bill is being sold to the Taiwanese public and legislators as uh, a means to attract high-level foreign professionals. But in fact, um, 
there are a number of provisions in it which affect us ordinary foreigners who have been living in Taiwan for a long time, which are quite uh, important. You touched on one of them, which is that permanent residents uh, will be able to leave the country for up to five years and retain their permanent resident status. So that'll make it easier to take a job in another country or perhaps take care of an aging relative or something like that. Uh, permanent residents are also going to be uh, eligible for the new pension scheme, uh, which allows you to have a portable pension account that your employer pays 6% of your salary uh, each month into. And one of the most significant changes, I think, is that the adult children of permanent residents who grow up in Taiwan will be able to get personal work permits to allow them to work and eventually achieve their own permanent residence. So that's a, that's a major change and one that's been uh, uh, a sore subject for long-term residents of Taiwan for a long time. Another important change, which you also mentioned, is that newborn infants will, of foreign residents will now be automatically eligible for the national health care system on birth instead of having to wait for six months like they did before. So there's a number of things in here which affect ordinary foreigners, even though most of the media coverage of this is focusing on what they're calling senior professionals. Another thing that caught my eye was this, this job-seeking visa, which seems a bit strange to me that foreign nationals will be allowed to enter Taiwan on a supposed job-seeking visa, and this, va- this visa will be valid for six months and extendable for another six months. So they're calling it a job-seeking visa, but this sounds like an unemployment visa to me, or I'm just, am I just being like completely sceptical about that? The whole thing. Well, I, I, I share your confusion about this. Uh, we, we, we didn't think this was really necessary, but it was something that the National Development Council uh, thought was, was important. Um, basically, the idea is to allow people to come to Taiwan, be here, and look for a job uh, rather than having to arrange a job from overseas, which, which does take a long time. And obviously, this has still got to be ratified by lawmakers. I mean, do you think there'll be lawmakers will simply rubber stamp it, or do you think there'll be some issues that certain parties in the legislature don't particularly like? I'm a little concerned about the uh, work permits for children of permanent residents. Uh, that's not really uh, consistent with the main theme of this law, which is attracting senior foreign professionals. But the numbers of people are so small that I think that uh, eventually they'll be persuaded that it's not going to have that much of an effect on uh, young people finding jobs in Taiwan. So that would be the one, one concern. But this bill is from the National Development Council, and this kind of bill, which comes from the executive UN, uh, passed by the ruling party, tends to be adopted almost exactly in the form that it's uh, passed by the executive UN. So I'm optimistic that it will it will come through in the form that we're seeing, basically in the form that we're seeing now. Um, the only thing is is that people shouldn't be too uh, impatient because, as everyone probably knows, the legislator is fully engaged with pension reform at the moment, and uh, uh, these a law to help foreign professionals is probably not going to get taken up until later in the year. All right, and once again, on the phone right there was Michael Fahey of Winkler Partners, talking to Gavin about potential uh, future changes to white-collar rules for foreign workers. But that is going to be it for the first half of the show. When we return, lots of scary headlines coming out of North Korea, but what might they mean for Taiwan? Gavin recently spoke with long-term Taiwan defense analyst Wendell Minnick, who has some answers to that question. Then the China Post is saying bye-bye to its print edition and is looking to up its digital coverage of Taiwan. What does this mean for the future of Taiwan's English language coverage? 
We discuss when we return to Taiwan this week. Welcome back to Taiwan This Week, ICRT's weekly roundup of news from around Taiwan. I am Keith Manconi, joined by Gavin Phipps, Yuan Ming Chao, and Brian Hugh. On Sunday, North Korea once again defied international pressure with a missile test, thought to be part of a program intended to create a nuclear-tipped intercontinental ballistic missile capable of reaching the United States. The test failed to launch a missile, but it succeeded in ratcheting up a regional tensions and there has been some response here in Taiwan as well. Last week, Taiwan's National Security Council convened a meeting to discuss the uh, rising tensions in the region. And just yesterday, Defense Minister Feng Shikuan said that there are plans in place to evacuate Taiwan's 20,000 expatriates in South Korea. So, uh, Gavin, a little bit of a response coming here from Taiwan. Yeah, the defence minister's comments got a rather funny response from the legislative yesterday when lawmakers were questioning him about this, when one of the lawmakers pointedly turned around and said, you've got eight aircraft ready to fly to South Korea to pick up ROC expats in the country, but surely if it kicks off with North Korea, there'll be no flights going in and most of the airfields for public airfields, civil airfields, will have been destroyed. I thought that was a good point, actually. Yeah. It's all right him saying we've got eight aeroplanes, but, I mean, where are they going to land them? But with all of that uh, sort of grim stuff to keep in mind, uh, you had a conversation with somebody who has shed some light on Taiwan's relationship with North Korea. Yeah, Taiwan has some rather dubious historical connections with North Korea, starting about 25 years ago, as Wendell Minnick told me. So Taiwan has a rather interesting history when it comes to dealings with North Korea. Well, yeah, uh, going back to 1991 when the Taiwan government uh, officially allowed uh, their uh, trade deals to be made with North Korea. Uh, it got very strange in the late 1990s when there were reports that uh, Taiwan was, a trying, was attempting to procure uh, Scud missile technology from the North Koreans, of all things. Uh, this was later uh, semi-confirmed by a North Korean defector to Seoul in 2005. Um, you may not be aware of it, but, uh, you know, in 2000, there was a quasi-embassy set up by the North Koreans near the city hall here in Taipei. Uh, it had a front company uh, name of uh, Korea Express, which was supposedly uh, encouraging tourism in North Korea. God knows what you would do there on vacation. <laughs> I, I became interested in North Korean affairs when I was uh, actually coming back on a gearing-class uh, destroyer into uh, Geelong Harbor uh, when I saw a North Korean uh, freighter uh, coming into port. And I just uh, couldn't believe that uh, the Taiwanese were doing business with the North Koreans. Uh, but later that year, uh, actually it was 2002, they were caught transporting heroin to Taiwan. And then later they were caught uh, transporting crystal meth uh, to Taiwan as well. So um, there's uh, other issues uh, in 2003. Uh, 
there was a there's a company here in Taiwan. I won't mention the name of the company, um, but uh, it's on Guangfu Road. Uh, they were caught shipping uh, dual use items to North Korea. One was a refrigerator box the size of a train car, uh, capable of uh, exceedingly low temperatures of uh, 70 degrees uh, below uh, Celsius, uh, zero uh, Celsius. Um, that was that was that's very cold beer for your refrigerator. Seventy degrees below zero on Celsius. Uh, Gao Shang, uh, there was an incident regarding a North Korean freighter, uh, freighter that was carrying uh, chemicals used for making chemical weapons. Uh, it was the U.S. intelligence community that actually put a stop to that uh, and forced the Taiwanese to. Uh, board the vessel and seized uh, 158 barrels of this chemical. Um, and then later that year, Formosa Group had to cancel a deal uh, after U.S. pressure uh, to build a coal power plant in North Korea. So there's been a, a lot of activity um, over the past 20, 20, 20, 20, 25 years with North Korea. That uh, Some of it's very dubious and some of it seems to be very legitimate business doings. Um, North Korea has a very strong interest uh, in computer technology, and, and Taiwan has certainly shipped a lot of computer equipment to North Korea as well. Right, obviously Donald Trump in the U.S. is stepping up his war of words against Pyongyang. I mean, how could this affect Taiwan? Well, I'm not sure it would affect Taiwan so much, um, but Taiwan does have... Well, I should say the North Koreans do have an office here in Taiwan. I visited the office, um, as you know, uh, in February, uh, and uh, I sent you a photograph of me uh, wrapped in the North Korean flag. Uh, I visited the office in Taipei here, and uh, just to confirm that it was still there, it's been there for about six or seven years, Um I don't know why it hasn't been shut down, uh, but they, uh, they are actually a front company for a local engineering export company. They have the same fax number, address, uh, same board of directors. Uh, so, it, it, you know, one of the things you want to do if you're, you're creating a front company is not use the same fax number. Uh, uh, gives you away right away. Uh, but what could happen is is that the local AIT folks, uh, which is the U.S. Embassy here technically, uh, could certainly shut this facility down if they wanted to. And why it remains open, I, I'm not quite sure. Uh, there might be other reasons for that uh, issue that I don't quite understand. But, uh, yeah, you know, Trump seems very serious on North Korea. Uh and he seems very serious also on, on being uh, extra friendly to Taiwan. I mean, there was the phone call between Trump and, and President Tsai uh, in January, um, and uh, that indicated the relationship would be uh, much closer in the future. Right, I mean, do, but I mean, do you think the U.S. is watching Taiwan's obviously rather dubious ties with North Korea, and it could actually clamp down on them? Like you said, it could close the office, but there's some question over whether the office could be closed. I mean, do you think the White House could take further action to stymie sort of Taiwan's ties with Pyongyang? Well, uh, 
it's difficult to say whether the White House would do anything regarding these these facilities here in Taiwan to do business with North Korea or or actually are North Korean front companies because these front companies exist all over Asia. Um, Malaysia, Indonesia, as you know, in Malaysia, the the uh, North Korean assassins killed uh, the Kim's brother in an airport using VX gas, of all things. Um, but there are these front companies all over Asia. They're in, definitely in Hong Kong. There are a lot of them. Thailand, of course, uh, has a lot of these North Korean front companies that uh, some of them appear to be NGOs, you know, save the save the kids, you know, and, and then you go there and there's actually military uh, folks there instead of, uh, you know, charity folks. Um, so I traced the local uh, North Korean front to Hong Kong, then I traced the the person who created the front company in Hong Kong to uh, an office in Beijing with the North Korean passport. So it's definitely a North Korean front company here in Taipei. Right, and do you think the Trump administration could use North Korea and China as leverage? Taiwan could be dragged into this if the Trump administration seeking Beijing's help on North Korea. Taiwan could play a sort of, it might not want to, but it could get dragged into this situation. Um, I think the relationship between North Korea and Taiwan is is not very important. Um, I do think that the, the Trump administration is pretty serious about um, the North Korean issue. Uh, I don't know why they haven't shut down the local front here. It's been in operation for about six years now. Um, I do believe that the U.S. military will strike uh, the North Korean launch site uh, on the east coast of North Korea. Um, I'm not sure about when, but they will definitely do that. I don't think they'll do anything more than that. But uh, I think we have a very different kind of president in the White House. And I think that the Chinese understand that. All right. And that, once again, was Wendell Minnick, long-term Taiwan defense analyst that you were hearing from there. Last up for the broadcast, the Taipei Times will soon stand as the only remaining English-language newspaper covering Taiwan. When we say newspaper, we mean Ink printed on grubby paper, you know, the kind that you can use to pick up dog poop or make a paper mache diorama out of physical, in-your-hands newspaper. It's going to be the last one after the China Post announced it is moving to an all-digital format, Gavin. Yeah, I believe from May the 15th, the China Post is the China Past. <clears throat> In print version, I In mean. Print In print version. version. Might be the China future... Of digital English language media covering Taiwan, well, though. The Taiwan News, of course, did it. The Taiwan News, of course, before was the China News, mm-hmm. which became the Taiwan News, shrank down in size, first of all, mm-hmm. then completely disappeared from the print version, and mm-hmm. now the Taiwan News is only available online. The China Post is going to go that way, leaving the Taipei Times and no doubt its owners to ponder their future. Well, they've done a little bit of pondering already. They have already released an app. And uh, the publisher for the China Post says that some of the strength of that digital presence uh, prompted some of this move. We're going to turn things over to Yuan Ming Chao, who is, of course, with the China Post. And the weight is on, now on his shoulder to represent uh, the entire China Post media juggernaut to uh, our audience right now. Yeah, the China Post has been in print since 1952. Um, 
it's one of the few uh, papers in Taiwan that has had you know a strong generational con- connection with its readers. Um, a lot of readers, you know, uh, read the China Post and uh, learned used it to learn English and. The same would happen with you know their their kids, and we get a lot of these stories. And it it will truly be sad when um, we don't print the paper anymore. Um, me and my colleagues, you know, we uh, were looking through the archives, you know, of the the past decades, and there, you know, these yellowed uh, papers, you know, with really interesting content about um, you know vignettes about Formosa. Um, Old movie listings, um, of just a, a you know a bonanza of things that uh, the paper has printed in in the past. But now, of course, there will be a new direction, and um, this will this will be something that we will be pursuing with a lot of momentum. Yeah. Mm. Was this a tough decision to make to uh, walk away from the print edition? I think the if you look at the media trends, not just in Taiwan but throughout the world, um, this is a direction you know going straight into the internet and engaging readers on multiple platforms. This was um, a must. This is a must. Um, um, there's no doubt about you know uh, social media. You know, lo- looking at our our demographics of uh, 25 to 34 year olds. You know the the young people, as you said, the millennials. Um, a lot of them probably haven't unfurled the newspaper for a while. Um, I remember um, uh, ta- uh, teaching a course at Beikuda, um, uh, and uh, I brought newspapers, uh, copies of the China Post for them, and they were quite uh, amazed by that. Um, and you know, I, I asked them when they last picked up a newspaper, and it was a really long. Long time ago, and a lot of this is because everybody, as you know, is getting their their uh, their news from their feeds on, on social media, and this is something that we will engage with, um, and also through our app and uh, the internet um, site is to to reach a a, a larger uh, share of um, of this uh, demographic. Yeah. Now, obviously, there are still a number of physical newspapers that are going to continue to run in Taiwan, Taipei Times being the last English one, but there's many, many uh, papers that are going to be running in Chinese. Do you think that there's anything about the English language media market itself that is making it make more sense to go into the digital route rather than, you know, remaining with all of these other Chinese producers? Yeah, I mean, I think the China Post recognizes that... uh, Chinese language content uh, or Chinese uh, and Taiwan related news uh, there's a there's an untapped uh, potential for that and this is what uh, the China Post sees as um, as something that we're ge- we're geared towards um, we have um, the tradition for that in print but we see that outside of print well, we're not as confined and um, oh, and just looking at um, the analytics you know some some stories in Taiwan can have a very broad resonance, not just in Asia, but uh, throughout the world. And it's this dynamic culture and uh, um, and politics and economics within this region that make Taiwan very important. And I think that's um, why the China Post sees the digital format as a means of getting that um, to more audiences. 
And we kind of already mentioned a little bit ago the app that you guys have released recently. When you talk about increasing your digital presence, what do you, presence, what do you think that's going to mean? Digital presence, of course, will mean a lot more visual-oriented uh, news. Of course, um, are you going to be taking a leaf from the Apple Daily on that front? Well, I mean, I think I think uh, creating clickbait is is one thing, um, but of course, you, uh, readers are going to also be very much interested in quality journalism, mm-hmm. and um, I think that's what the China Post has a strength in. We have experienced reporters. We have you know dedicated team of editors and and designers and. I think they're up to the challenge. Well, I want to know is what we can do to make a crossword. Yeah, we can. The key, crossword's really important. Yeah, the crossword's going online, is it? Yeah, yeah. And have you got any plans to like, scan all your old editions of the China Post and stick them online? This is something that is. I hope that the company really, um, really invests in in the future because this is uh, because we we've been um, showcasing uh, parts of our archive on on Saturday, on the Saturday Post. And um, and you can also see these on our website. Um, they're just really interesting snippets. And I think it's a, it's an asset for all of Taiwan if we preserve this and, and make it digital. As far as the decision to walk away from uh, print media goes, I mean, does it really just come down to an issue of print is relatively expensive and it... it th- th- Given that the future is in digital, it makes more sense to take those resources and apply them to upping your digital game? I don't think we can ignore a broader media trends completely. Um, obviously, of course, um, print costs uh, resources. But, um, but I think the potential of the Internet in terms of, of broadening uh, to different platforms you know, in terms of cooperating with other uh, um, media platforms and broadening uh, through social media is something that outweighs even the cost consideration. Mm. Yeah. So, Gavin, you actually yourself uh, used to work at the China News before it became the Taiwan News and eventually went all online. So you, you are somebody with experience in uh, the print media here in Taiwan, Tell us a little bit about uh, the trend that you've seen over the last many, many years. I think it's what, what Yun Ming said. It's a question of money, basically, and resources. They've got to go online. Basically, the China, obviously the China, the China News was obviously the China Post's big rival back in the, the, the day, to coin a stupid phrase. I still think the China News had the best crossword, but I was biased. <laughs> <laughs> so, uh, but I think it's a question of money. I mean, the China, the China News got sold to the Emei Food Group. And it became the Taiwan News, and obviously they thought, well, we don't own a we're a food company, we don't own a printing press, stick it online, mm-hmm. save money. Yeah, it's quite interesting. You may obviously when the China Post goes online, you have to wonder what the Liberty Times owners are going to be thinking, mm-hmm. looking at the Taipei Times, going, hmm. Why are we still publishing this? Maybe we could save money sticking the Taipei Times online. So were you, you know, seeing the... Are, are, are you a sentimental fool for the print edition? Were you sorry to no, see the Taiwan News go? dirty hands. I hate picking <laughs> up newspapers. I really do. You, and you like your Blackberry. I do. I don't like the internet much, but I don't I like newspapers. No, no. Mucky, <laughs> mucky things, newspapers. Mucky things. But the M- China News had the best crossword. Yeah. Well, we we will have to miss that. But it will be really interesting. I mean, if, like Yun Ming said, if they do put all their archives online, mm-hmm. if they go back to the first edition of the China Post and the second edition and the third, 
years of it and stick it all online. Mm-hmm. What a what a resource that would be. That would be. Yeah. You could look up any date. You could look mm-hmm. up your birthday. Yeah. You know, if you were born a long time ago like me, and see what was happening on that day in in Taiwan. Yeah. You right. could even see what was on at the cinema. Hmm. Yeah. Yeah. A lot of a lot of history right there. Brian, you're somebody who uh, runs a media organization covering Taiwan, New Bloom Magazine. He's also too young to remember what newspapers are. Well, I don't know that. <laughs> <laughs> I actually, I actually used to do lay, uh, layout for you know newspapers actually, so that's something I used to do. Touche, touche. <laughs> so obviously, I mean, and, uh, New Bloom offers some Chinese coverage, but uh, clearly your your bread and mm. butter is English language coverage. Mm. Does this move uh, signal anything to you about the future of English language coverage here in Taiwan? Yeah, I actually think that's a big concern because you know there are not really many news organizations in Taiwan that operate in English that have the resources to you know cover everything that happens in the news cycle. Mm-hmm. So you know there are smaller publications such as New Bloom or whatever you know Ketagon Media and you know Taiwan Sentinel, but these are you know they, there's they, there's just not the resources to cover the entire news spectrum, um, and you know there's also the challenge of that English language news is usually part of a larger news organization that is primarily focused on Chinese. So English news is just kind of a small section that, you know, could possibly get eliminated because it doesn't have the the same size audience. And, you know, news organizations are facing challenges with regards to digital and with regards to declining readership and so forth. So, you know, the English section might be the first thing that gets the axe. And, you know, between print and online, for me, the way I look at it is that even if you do have more views online with a print version that has a respectability or a credibility which you're not going to get otherwise. So I think it is it is a blow to Taiwan that you know Taiwan does only have one you know English language that is to say international uh, new print newspaper. And if if Taipei Times goes, then you know they'll be like, oh, this this country or this province or whatever it is, you know, just doesn't have even a newspaper. So that in an international newspaper, and that that would be an issue. Uh, yeah, Yuan Ming, what do you, what, do you, what do you think about that? I mean. You are the China Post's digital media guy. So clearly you're somebody who thinks that digital media is important. Do you think that there's a way to establish a digital presence as a prestige enterprise, you know, with as much prestige as an actual physical paper has? I'm not denying that there will be challenges to that. Of course, um, a lot of media organizations are are dealing with with this exact challenge of is, is their digitalization, you know, transforming their original you know, uh, brand. Um, but I think with the digitalization strategy that uh, we will pursue is that um, that quality will not be sacrificed because mm-hmm. readers expect that. Uh, readers um, who read our paper will not just wake up one day and find that the China Post has changed completely, you mm-hmm. know. Um, I think with... Um, the the question about the English uh, language niche is that there's a lot that can be done with it online um, that hasn't already been done in in Taiwan. I think it's been done uh, may, may primarily for 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 the local readership, but I think with creativity and uh, some ad- adaptations that um, with enough uh, reach. This can be quite, uh, quite a, you know, an opportunity, and and I think with um, in terms of engaging other media, it's also not just um, you know a zero sum game. I think what we need to focus on uh, online is you know engaging more readers, 
Um, and because in in this you know media age right now, it's not just about us. Uh, believing what is important, giving it to to people. It's also interacting with our readers, and that's that's an important part of the social media component. And I, I bet uh, Brian also no, knows this as well. Is that that interaction? Um, I think through multiple platforms will be important for Taiwan and the region. All right, and uh, on that point, we are going to bid the China Post print edition adieu, and move on to our final topic for the podcast edition today. Uh, Gavin has prepared for us our bonus podcast story, generally on the lighter end of things. I don't know what he cooked up today, but uh, is that safe to say, Gavin, on the lighter end of things today? Sex. There. We, okay. <laughs> that that's an answer. That's an answer to Sex that question. At universities. Oh wow! Uh, one university. Mm-hmm. Of course, I, it, it does not really about sex. It's, I just, Tangentially, it, sort of around and around and around about way it's about sex. Anyway, the National Junggung University in Tainan. Well, its um, student union is gearing up to hold its leadership election, mm-hmm. and a couple of the candidates for the student union leadership came up with a good idea, and they called on the faculty to adopt a proposal to allow co-ed rooming for couples in the school dormitories. Well, the school was apparently a bit aghast about this and went, no way, no way, no way. And they said, no, we're not even going to debate couples living in dormitories in the co-ed rooming thing. So the school dismissed this as just said, no way, we're not going to have this copulation going on in our dormitories, (laughs) in our co-ed rooming areas. Mm Mm-hmm. Now, the students themselves, when they were asked about this idea for co-ed rooming for couples in dormitories, thought it was all a bit of a gimmick by the actual candidates. Yeah. I didn't think that. I thought the gimmick by the candidates, one of them particularly, was this bit, when one of the candidates turned round and he turned round and he said, I also think that dorm rooms should be more soundproof and furniture provided should include love seats. That is a that is a strong so candidate right there. He took it a bit far, didn't he? Eh? He took it a bit far. <laughs> he, well, you know, you got to be clear on what your platform is. Well, I wasn't quite sure what he meant by love seats because, of course, love seats. If you look at love seats, they're these funny old-fashioned seats from like probably the 1700s. Yeah, and they're usually one pretty narrow. Fa- they're usually one seat's facing one way and one mm-hmm. seat's facing the other. Yeah, yeah. Wouldn't be I very was practical. Wondering whether this translation was incorrect. Could be. And he was talking about those other seats mm-hmm. that you can buy to use. We're, that's going to be lost in translation. I guess we're just going to have to uh, wonder. We'll be left to wonder. It's interesting, though, that this uh, university has produced an election that's actually uh, quite a bit more interesting than the KMT's chairmanship race. So uh, good yeah, job to I this university. Yeah, talking about love seats. <laughs> that's a platform that would get the base fired up easily. I don't know. Uh, Brian, you're the, you're the one who left uh, university most recently. I can understand, you know, even even the most liberal of universities, I could almost understand uh, being opposed to this out of hand just for the practical reason of a college relationship. How long do those last? I mean, just imagine all the, the re-rooming uh, requests that would come out if this was actually put into place. I wonder about that. You know, for example... Um I'm, when I went my freshman year of college, I attended a college that had co-ed bathrooms, and you know you don't see that often in the United States. So, 
it, it, a lot of these things with, you know, different co-ed rooming arrangements so far, like, imagine that would be controversial. Um, in Taiwan particular, I think, because, you know, I think there is very gender-segregated dorming assignments in many universities. So I'm actually a little surprised that this came up in the election. Um, well, we'll, we'll, got, we'll see if Apple, Apple Daily gets on it, though, and, you know, spins <laughs> it off into, uh, you know, exactly, you know, look at our young people today. <laughs> well, that's that's the kind of coverage that we're providing today on the exactly. show. Uh, Yuan Ming, so is this perfect fodder for your new digital presence at the China Post? It's certainly clickbait, isn't it? Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> it is It is pretty. I mean, Brian certainly has a, a point there. It was just a year ago that we were talking about Fu Ren University in a protest there. Uh, they weren't even talking about desegregating that the was, dorms. They, they were talking. to come home after midnight. Exactly. The, there, the, the, the curfew for women was much more strict than the curfew for men. They weren't even talking about, you know, integrating the dorms. They were just saying, hey, maybe you should allow women to stay out past curfew. Uh, so clearly, this is something that, at least in many universities, uh, this would be a shocking proposal. Yeah, I mean, the exciting things. Uh, the exciting thing is a lot of this, you know, is breaking out on social media, and and this, you know, is it shows us how these uh, changes are happening at such a, a quick pace, mm-hmm. and and it's even hard for the news media to keep up with it, mm-hmm. you know, with the discussions and the debates behind it, and but. It also means that, you know, we we understand that, you know, there's nothing static about our society and, and a lot of things are, are, are just are just moving forward. Mm. Now, if the KMT did want to take this on as a platform, I, don't, I think it might garner some uh, support, you know, not getting too graphic here, but I think Taiwan's rooms, not even talking about dormitories, but just rooms in general could use more soundproofing. I mean, there's, there's a lot of noises that I hear from my neighbors that I would prefer to not hear. Um, I mean, you know, in the U.S., there's the, the candidate Vermin Supreme who promises a free pony for all. I think that, you know, somebody should make a platform of, you know, love seats for all. Love <laughs> every seats. citizen gets, uh, yeah... A chicken in every pot, a love seat in every room. I, 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 I would vote for that candidate. All right, and on that note, we will leave it there. That is it for the show today. Please do join us again next time. Time on this week broadcasts every Friday evening during the 8 p.m. hour right here on ICRT FM 100 around about 8.15 p.m. You can also find an extended version of the show online at the ICRT website, on iTunes, a couple of other places. Signing off from the ICRT studio, I am Keith Menconi, joined by Gavin Phipps. Good night. Brian Hugh. Good night. And Yuan Ming Chow. Good night. Thank you all for listening. See you again next time on Taiwan This Week. <laughs>